Exodus 20, verse number 1. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and resteth the seventh day. Therefore, or wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and hallowed it. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. We'll stop right there. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would uh, make us alert, responsive to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Yes. Lord, if, if you lead someone to question the message, may they be willing to respond to your leadership and not to the language of the preacher. Again, we ask for wisdom, not for our glory, not for ourselves, but for the honor of our Savior. Yes. Bless, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Let us say that one day you and your neighbor are chatting. He knows that you are a Christian. You have told him several times about your testimony of Christ. You've invited him to church. But as he has said... He is satisfied with his religion. In other words, he doesn't want whatever you're trying to give to him. You know that he was raised in one of the mainline denominations, but he doesn't attend. As far as you know, he never has attended since you've moved into the neighborhood. Today, the subject of same-sex marriages comes up, and he, surprising you, asked for your opinion about same-sex marriages. Without any forethought, your response is, same-sex marriages are an abomination to God. Just lay it out there. Let's not waste any time here. Your liberal-minded neighbor is shocked, and immediately he asks for an explanation. 
Not being prepared for this, you then reply simply, the Bible condemns homosexuality. With that, your neighbor stomps his foot a time or two, turns around on his heel, and walks back toward his house. Later in the day, you're still thinking about that conversation, and you wonder whether or not you could have handled it just a little better. You get out your uh, uh, reference Bible, and you turn to the account of Sodom and Gomorrah. And that Bible of yours has a reference in the margin that says, look to Leviticus chapter 17, where God does condemn homosexuality and apparently same-sex marriages. Turn to Leviticus 17. Or is it chapter 18? Go to chapter 18, verse number 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, I am the Lord your God. After the doings of the land of Egypt, wherein ye dwelt for 400 years, ye shall not do. And after the doings of the land of Canaan, whither I bring you, Ye shall not do, neither shall ye walk in their ordinances. Ye shall do my judgments, keep my ordinances to walk therein. I am Jehovah, I am the Lord, your God. From there, we have verse after verse after verse talking about uncovering other people's nakedness. Your Bible has a note in it which says that God is forbidding incestuous marriages and other forms of immorality. And then verse number 22, you find that word that you used with your neighbor. Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is abomination. And you also see in Leviticus 20 in verse number 13, if a man also lie with mankind as he lieth with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. Now, having armed yourself with some proof texts, you decide you're going to go back to your neighbor and teach him what the Bible says. You're going to share with him what you hope is to repair the relationship with you. You don't want him throwing his garbage over the fence into your backyard. You're trying to fix things. And at the same time, you want to teach him what the Word of God says. He believes the Word of God, doesn't he? He will respond to what he finds in the Bible, won't he? Well, certainly he will. Knocking on his door, that big Bible under your arm, he comes and answers the door, and you are invited inside. After your apology for offending him, you say that you would like to show him what was behind what you told him earlier. He's not particularly happy. He's not quivering with joy, but uh, he asks you to sit down, and you, you do. He sits across from you. Opening your Bible to Leviticus, 
He says that he would like to follow you in his uh, Revised Standard Version. So you let him go get his Bible and dust it off and open up to the, the same chapter. Then you begin to read him the Word of God. When you have finished, you glance up and see his face glowing red. And you hear him say, you hypocrite. You hypocrite. He points across the page to Leviticus 19.17, which says, Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. And he accuses you of hating homosexuals. And he even goes so far as to say, Why aren't you out there stoning those homosexuals that you hate? Before you have a chance to answer him, he points to verse number 27 and accuses you of sin because you trim your beard. And then there is that wool cotton blend of fabric that you have in your, your shirt, which is condemned in verse number 19. And uh, in your garden, you have carrots and radishes planted side by side. Again, verse number 19. He says that the other day he could smell and he could hear sizzling bacon coming from your kitchen, which of course is contrary to the command of God in Leviticus chapter 11. And did you really want to stone him for mowing the lawn last Sunday afternoon or doing the laundry? After a few more minutes of quoting and misquoting scripture, he concludes once again by declaring, you are a hypocrite. He tells you that he has other Christian acquaintances just like you who pick and choose which laws to implement, which laws to obey, which ones to skip, which ones to plant on other people's heads. Am I a hypocrite? because I trim my beard every now and then, and yet uh, still I believe that homosexuality is a sin? Are you uh, a sinner for eating shrimp wrapped in bacon fried in grease? Uh, do we arbitrarily pick and choose what laws we use to guide us? The truth is, we do. But we aren't hypocrites because our obedience is not arbitrary. There are rules involved. Just as not every promise in the Bible belongs to the Christian, not every law in the Bible belongs to the Christian. There are promises which God has given to Israel which we have no right to apply to ourselves. To do so is theological and spiritual theft. We are not spiritual replacements for Israel. And in regard to the Lord's laws, God has laid down rules to follow involving God's rules. If I can put it that way. For most Christians, those rules are instinctive. We just know that they're there. We don't think about the rules involved in following God's rules, but that's our theme tonight. That's where I want to take you. There are rules. There are three different kinds of laws revealed in the Bible. 
Or maybe I should say that the laws we find in the Bible come in three divisions, and each has a different purpose. We might describe some of them as moral laws. And then there are ceremonial laws. There are judicial laws. Someone might think that I am making up these distinctions. I am not. They've been around in theologies for a long time, and they come right out of the Word of God. This differentiation is not new. In 1689, 330 years ago, the Baptists of London published a statement declaring and defending what it was that they believed. Unlike the earlier confession of 1644, and unlike the Philadelphia Confession, which is one of, it was the first here in the United States, this particular one in 1689 had a distinct and thorough section on the law of God. And I'd like to read it to you. I will read it slowly. This was 300 years ago, after all. Point number one. God gave to Adam a law of universal obedience written in his heart and a particular precept of not eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In that original internal law, God bound him and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience, promised life upon the fulfilling, and threatened death upon the breach of it, and endued Adam with power and ability to keep it. Genesis 1, Ecclesiastes 7, and several other scriptures at that point. Point number two, the same law that was written in the heart of man continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after he fell, after he sinned, and was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai the Ten Commandments, and written in two tables, the first, the four first containing our duty toward God, and the other six our duty to man. And several scriptures are noted there. Point number three. Besides this law, commonly called moral, God was pleased to give the people of Israel ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties, all which ceremonial laws being appointed only to the time until the time of Reformation, speaking of the time of Christ. They are, by Jesus Christ, the true Messiah and only lawgiver, who was furnished with power from the Father for that end, abrogated and taken away. Those ceremonial laws have been removed. Hebrews, Colossians, 1 Corinthians, Colossians again, Ephesians 2. Point number four. To them also, to the Israel also, he gave sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the state, with the country of that people, not obliging any now by virtue of that institution, their general equity only being of moral use. I'll explain that in just a second. Point number five. The moral law doth forever bind us all, as well 
justified persons as others, binds the saved person and the lost person to obedience thereof, and that not only in regard of the matter contained in it, but also in respect of the authority of God the Creator who gave it. Neither doth Christ in the gospel in any way dissolve, much rather strengthen this obligation to the moral law. And scripture's there. Summarizing. There is a moral law written in every heart. It is also recorded in the Ten Commandments. It is eternal. It is to be obeyed by everyone by the children of God and the children of the world. Then to Israel were laws given in regard to their worship and their religion, laws which generally point to Christ, the Lamb of God. They illustrate him. They are ceremonial, dealing with sacrifices and feast days, clothing of the priests, and so on and so forth. They were fulfilled and completed in Christ Jesus. So they have no application upon the Christian or for the Christian today. And then finally, there were laws given to Israel to govern them as a nation, which although giving guidance to other nations, the general precepts involved, those laws were given to Israel, not to the United States. We can learn from them, but that's all. What does this threefold aspect of God's law mean in a practical sense? It means that you and I are obligated to pick and choose between the laws, applying only those which God intended for us. Let me illustrate. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Verse number four, very well-known scripture, repeated in the New Testament. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. Even though this command to love God was given to Israel, It is our obligation as well. We know that it is incumbent upon us for three reasons. First, it is a reflection of the first table of the Ten Commandments. Second, the New Testament tells us without any confusion that it still applies to us today. Furthermore, It isn't a command for believers only. It is incumbent upon everyone. So the lost as well as the saved. To love the Lord our God is a moral law. It is an eternal law. It will probably be the first thing that's brought up at the great white throne judgment. But let's read on. Verse number six. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, 
and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house and when thou walkest by the way and when thou liest down and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thy hand and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. Thou shalt write upon them write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. The little box that is worn on the left hand of the Orthodox Jew or the little box that is tied to his head and sits right there on his forehead is called in the New Testament a phylactery. If some professing Christian tries to tell you that you must wear a phylactery because Deuteronomy chapter 6 says so, then you need to pause for just a minute. If he says that he is going to obey Deuteronomy 6.8, proving that he is more spiritual than you are because he's wearing a phylactery, you might remind him that you choose not to wear one. Deliberately. I will not wear one. Because it is not a part of the moral law. It is not given to Christians. We don't find any of the apostles ever wear, anywhere in the New Testament say, you need to wear a little box with a scripture in it on your left arm or on your forehead. Furthermore, Christ condemned the misuse of those phylacteries and other uh, dressing things that the Pharisees did in their day. Matthew chapter 23 and verse number five. You might tell that person who wants to do this sort of thing that he is being pharisaical. And chapter 23 of Matthew the Lord Jesus said, Woe to you Pharisees! You guys are the hypocrites for insisting on this. It is not hypocritical to pick and choose between God's laws when some of them were never meant for us. It is hypocritical and pharisaical to demand microscopic obedience to all the principles that we find in the Old Testament. Now let's go back to that subject of same-sex marriages, homosexuality. Why do we Christians apply God's pro prohibition to these things, but not to trimming our beards? Because the seventh of the Ten Commandments says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Wait a minute now. We're talking about homosexuality, not adultery. You don't find, adult, don't find homosexuality here. I'll admit that the word of God doesn't use that word. But the homosexual application grows out of that uh, condemnation of adultery. The condemnation of adultery may be applied to all forms of sexual immorality from premarital fornication to sex with animals. It's all forbidden. In a similar way, the sixth commandment doesn't condemn abortion, but it does condemn murder. Yep. Yep. Since abortion is one variety of murder, yep then it can be justly said that abortion is condemned by the Ten Commandments. Yes. 
I know we're making an application here, but still, yes. I think it's appropriate. Yes. The Bible doesn't mention euthanasia. But I think it is condemned here in, this, in the Ten Commandments. Furthermore, the New Testament endorses the Seventh Commandment condemning immorality. I think we read from Romans chapter 1 this morning. We don't need to do it again. One of the problems in studying and applying the laws of God is that the Holy Spirit sometimes in the Old Testament, in Leviticus, in Deuteronomy, will have a judicial law right next to a moral law. It's the Bible student's responsibility to learn to recognize which is which. God's moral laws are eternal. They are always on his books. We are always responsible for them. They apply equally to the saint and to the condemned sinner. The other ones, the ceremonial laws, the judicial laws, apply only to Israel. We can recognize God's moral laws when we see them in the Ten Commandments and when we see them in the New Testament. They apply to us. But why did the Lord give those ceremonial and judicial laws to Israel if they don't have universal application? First, because many of them, like the various sacrifices, were types, pictures, and prophecies of the coming Savior, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. The feasts which Israel kept, they were all depictions of some aspect of salvation in Christ and the blessings that we have in the Lord. Another reason for those laws was to draw a line of distinction between God's nation and the other nations. Deuteronomy 4. Just back a couple of pages there. Verse number 1. Now therefore hearken, O Israel, unto the statutes and unto the judgments which I teach you, for to do them, that ye may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord, thy God, the Lord God of your fathers giveth you. Ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did because of Baal Peor, for all the men that followed Baal Peor, the Lord thy God hath destroyed them from among you. But ye that did cleave unto the Lord your God are alive every one of you this day. Behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the Lord my God commanded me, that ye should do, yes, ye should do so, in the land where ye go to possess it. Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear of these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is wise and an understanding people. For what nation is there so great who hath God so nigh unto them as the Lord your God is in all these things that we call upon him for? Someone might ask, aren't Christians supposed to be separated from the world 
as Israel was supposed to be a distinct nation from the Egyptians or the Assyrians, Babylonians, whatever. Since like Israel, we are to be and appear to be and behave in a fashion that's supposed to be different from the lost around us, shouldn't we obey those same Old Testament laws which set Israel apart? At first thought, we might say, yeah, maybe so. But to answer, I'll point out that not only are Christians supposed to be different from the world, today we must be different from Israel because they're a bunch of Christ-rejecting unbelievers. Should we have characteristics and practices which set us apart from the unbelieving? Absolutely. But we take them from the New Testament not from the laws which God gave to Israel. But do we actually take our direction from the moral laws and those things which Christ and the apostles taught us? I should stop the message right here before I get into trouble. You love me, don't you? Let's test that. Put that to the test. This is just for fun. Let me emphasize, this is just for fun. If you disagree with me on these things, that's all right. I could be wrong. And I'll uh, admit that. That's a, that is a possibility. You may be right. So let's start with an easy question. Why don't we make circumcision a Christian regulation? Clearly, Old Testament, even before the days of Moses, it was a law for Israel. But Paul spent chapters in his letters saying it does not apply to the Christian. Easy one. We got that one figured out. Why don't we forbid eating bacon and barbecued pork ribs? Are dietary laws a part of the moral law? They are not. Wasn't Peter told by the Lord not to call animals, which the Lord at that point was calling clean? Mm -hmm. Don't you call them unclean? I saw an article in a Christian paper the other day. I should have pulled it out. Should have put it in the bulletin for you. It said that Christian men should wear beards. Every Christian man should have a beard. Is that a part of the moral law? Is that a part of the Word of God? <laughs> I'm not sure. Do I have any authority to tell you, men, to make sure that that little hair that grows there at your temple is never cut? It's nice and long and curly like uh, uh, the uh, what, uh, Hasidic Jews. Here's a fun one. Do you condemn tattoos? On what grounds do you condemn the tattoo? Please understand that I don't particularly like what is called body art these days. It's a personal preference of mine. But I'm wondering about the arguments that I sometimes hear against tattoos. Are they mentioned in the Ten Commandments? Ah, uh, does Paul bring them up? 
What about people gluing horns to the top of their heads? Do I have a scripture that says you should not do this? It just, it's foolishness as far as I'm concerned. But uh, personal preference, I assume, or I hope that we're all agreed in this personal preference against attaching horns to our heads. Um, what about body piercings? You're not going to quote Leviticus 19.28, are you? You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor print any marks upon you. I am the Lord. Is that part of the moral law or part of God's law to Israel? Why weren't the Israelites to cut their flesh? Because that's what the heathen were doing. Don't identify with the heathen in cutting your flesh and marking your bodies. Show a difference between you and the rest of the world. And by the way, you say that you don't like the modern body piercing. But do you or the women in your family have pierced ears? I don't. Good for you. <laughs> it's all right to have pierced ears, but it's terrible to have a pierced belly button. Uh, come on now. Are we hypocrites? Or are you still with me? I, I'm glad you, I'm glad we don't permit rotten vegetables in the auditorium. <laughs> There are many Christians who condemn the practice of cremation, citing religious practices of the idolaters. Can you point to a command where Paul says, do not cremate your dead? Burial is the common biblical practice. It's true. I won't deny that. It's absolutely true. But if you want to say that Jesus was buried as an example to us all, then you might have to get rid of your card hearts and start wearing a robe. We have an example of the Lord there too. I know I'm bordering on the silly here, but I'm trying to make a point. We have no business taking laws which apply to Israel and applying them to ourselves. Yes, there are commands which are obligatory to both Christians and Jews. They're called moral laws. Yeah. And we can find them in both Testaments. We find them authorized by Christ Jesus. And going back to your angry neighbor, do we pick and choose the laws that we're going to obey and enforce? Yes, we do. We have biblical principles for making those choices. And we need to be sure that whatever we do or we do not do, we do them for the glory of the Lord. Yeah. Not to be able to look down on our neighbor for whatever he does. Yeah. And in those things... We need to do our very best to make sure that our obedience is based on the Word of God. I'm doing it for the glory of the Lord, and it's contrary to the Word of God. 
That's not going to work. I hope I've been somewhat helpful this evening.